This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong This is Abe Goldberg, director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement and faculty member in the Department of Political Science here at James Madison University. And hi, I'm Marina. I'm a senior political science and psychology major, and I'm a democracy fellow with James Civic. So the idea for our guest today actually came from Marina. Marina, will you share with us why you wanted to have uh, Professor John Krosnick from Stanford University on Democracy Matters? Um, I was drawn to inviting him simply because as a psychology major um, that is primarily focused many much of her studies on um, political science in the past two years here at JMU, I thought it was fascinating that he was working with a psychology base on voter turnout. And so a lot of the times I work with opinions and that those matters and just hearing about his methodology was just absolutely fascinating to me and just overall his work. Um, additionally, I took a, a course with Dr. Blankenship here at JMU and he works with the psychological um, side of voting which I originally wanted to get involved in his course specifically in the research of that. But unfortunately, I didn't get to do that with my time here. So this was kind of me realizing my dream of (laughs) talking to Dr. Krosnick about this. In this episode, we talk with Dr. John A. Krosnick, a social psychologist who does research on attitude formation, change, and effects on the psychology of political behavior and on survey research methods. He is the Frederick O. Glover Professor in Humanities and Social Sciences, Professor of Communication, Political Science, and by Courtesy Psychology at Stanford University. In addition to his professorships, he directs the Political Psychology Research Group and the Summer Institute in Political Psychology. We hope you enjoy our discussion with Dr. Krosnick. We invite you to share your comments and engage with us in the conversation on social media at JMU Civic on Twitter and at JMU Duke's Vote on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. John, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. Uh, You've studied how events can shape and impact attitudes about government and policy. What do we know so far about how the violent and racist insurrection on the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021 is impacting attitudes towards government and elections? And in your view, what are the implications of the January 6th violent attacks and the ongoing insurrection for public opinion about democracy in America? Well, the January 6th events have so many implications in so many directions, such a startling moment for the country um, for us to take a moment and to pause and to think about presidential leadership, for us to think about the role that citizens play, for us to think about the way our legislators in Congress make their decisions about the the constitutionally mandated processes that govern the the collection of votes, the counting of votes, the uh, approving of votes, and so on. There there are so many issues that have been brought up, but I'm going to focus my comment on just one of them, which is, I think the concern that we are seeing um, across the country and perpetuated today, that elections may not be to, taken, to be taken for granted the way we have in the past. Um, I think Amer- Americans have been used to trusting government to count votes accurately. 
and to collect votes fairly. Um, there certainly has been plenty of news coverage of disputes about election results, about gerrymandering and other procedural aspects of the system in ways that um, if Americans wanted to pay attention and get distressed, they could. Um, there's certainly plenty of evidence from um, the campaign finance side of things that distresses some people. But I think for most of us up until very recently, the idea that the that at least you know the folks who cast ballots on election day um, would have their voices heard in the sense that those votes would be counted accurately. Um, was not really a question. Now, this is a question in other countries, especially in developing democracies, that on occasion, uh, the population of a country will rise up after an election and say, we just don't believe this election outcome. And that that's what has led, for example, Jimmy Carter's center um, to create a, a an enterprise whereby a country can ask the Carter Center to, to send in a group of observers to watch how an election is conducted and to certify that it was conducted fairly. It's interesting to note that the Carter Center, if it had been asked to monitor American elections, would have refused to do so uh, over the last decades because in the United States, we don't meet one of their minimum criteria for fairness. And that is in order for them to monitor an election, it is not okay for partisans to be running the vote counting process. And yet, for example, in Ohio a few years ago, the chair of the reelect George W. Bush campaign was the secretary of state who was in charge of conducting the election. And that was enough and, and is often the case. It's That was enough for the Carter Center to say, sorry, American elections don't meet the minimum criteria for us to even be willing to consider certifying them. And uh, so it, I think we find ourselves in, in 2020, 2021 as a country, now asking ourselves a question that maybe we should have asked before, uh, because uh, all of us having this conversation today know that an election is nothing more than a scientific measurement exercise. And so doing the American National Election Study, asking people questions, collecting their responses, adding them up, that's what scientists do all the time. And we know that scientific measurement is imperfect, that mistakes happen at each of the steps of the way, and that meticulousness is really critical. And yet in the United States, we have people who are professionals in the conduct of elections trying to do their work incredibly quickly, right? The pressure to count those votes fast is is tantamount to, it's just tr tremendous. And so as, as a result of that, um, the, there is pressure to come up with an answer rather than necessarily coming up with the most accurate answer. And that ideally we collect data on election day from voters in a way that allows us to verify in the way a scientist would, that we have a complete tracking of what has happened to votes that we can, that it's not done on computers in a way that the votes disappear, but that there's a paper permanent record of how each person cast votes. Um, and, you know, we have not had that um, in all locations. The, the A few years ago, uh, the elections officials fell in love with touchscreen machines and fell in love with touchscreen machines in a way that did not have a paper trail, that did not have accountability, where um, hackers could, in theory, break into a system and alter vote counts. And people like David Dill, my colleague at Stanford, a computer scientist, have been very loud voices saying, don't do this. Don't rely on machines only. Make sure that there is a paper trail. And having a paper trail that's verified by the voter, so the voter says, yes, that's how I voted, that paper trail gets retained and so on. We are not in that place. In fact, the truth is that American elections 
are run by the states, not by the federal government, which means that every state has the potential to use different equipment in different places to collect votes. And that makes the scientific process of measurement all the more open to potential problems. Um, and yet, as a country, we, we really didn't doubt the integrity of that vote counting process until one person, President Trump, declared this was a ripped off election. And at this point, surveys suggest a significant number of Americans are wondering whether this election was fairly conducted, whether the votes were properly counted. And I, I, I think, you know, you could imagine that some of those individuals are disingenuous when they say, I don't believe it, that they're kind of pretending. And you might even argue that that Donald Trump himself is disingenuous, that he knows that it was counted properly, but it's in his interest to continue to whip up dis, dissatisfaction about the election, either for fundraising purposes or energizing the base. Um, you know, it's, it's a little hard to know that for sure. But what we know for sure is that people are are, including President Trump, saying on a regular basis that election wasn't conducted fairly. And so what can we do about that? Well, one thing is we can forget about it. We can pretend it didn't happen. We can ignore them, say it's not important and move on with our lives. But I'm not personally in favor of that. And I personally see this as an opportunity for two really exciting uh, moves in the future. Um, one is to take the opportunity to make elections as fair as possible, period, and to, to create a transparency in the process, to create an accountability, to create those paper trails, to perhaps to have some federal mandates that say, look, states, you can do these things however you want. However, you've got to meet some minimum standards of accountability, reproducibility, verifiability, and so on. I don't see that, frankly, as the federal government encroaching into territory that is problematic. I see that as a good thing. Um, so, uh, and what could we do? You know, there's, there are the technological issues, there's the paper trail, there's uh, maybe creating validation and counting processes that are used uniformly across the country where all of us, including scientists, can say, yep, that would be a good way of doing it. Um, and, 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 you know, probably avoiding the use of electronics that are vulnerable to hacking. Um, but there's another issue that's very close to my heart that I couldn't not mention to you in this sentence, and that is the impact of candidate name order. Um, I was very, very lucky over the last 20 years to be able to do research looking at uh, the impact of candidate name order. And my research dovetails remarkably with the research of many other people now worldwide who've looked at this, showing that candidates get a few more percent when they're listed first than they would otherwise. And we think we understand well the psychology lying behind it. Um, it's a combination of some voters feeling ambivalent or undecided and other voters lacking information about a particular race but feeling pressure to cast a vote anyway. And in those cases, um, if a ballot places a particular candidate first uh, throughout a state, then that is, in fact, putting a thumb on the scale to tip the outcome of that election. And I feel very, very, very fortunate not only to have been able to do research on this topic and to publish it in peer-reviewed journals and to see the topic come alive in the literature with lots of colleagues doing work in other countries and in other elections, looking at these kinds of things and finding the same things. But I was asked to serve as an expert witness in a series of lawsuits that were brought during the last couple of years to try to force some states to start rotating name order to be like Ohio, where uh, in Ohio, name candidate name orders rotated from precinct to precinct um, to create a balance and not to give an advantage to any particular candidate. Um, almost no states do what Ohio does. 
Um, and so I would love to see that done elsewhere. Ohio has been doing it for decades. Um, there is no doubt that elections officials are capable of doing it. Um, sometimes one might raise the question about, oh, my God, you got to create different versions of the ballot for every reason. And that's true. But they can manage it. I think everybody else can manage it. And uh, the first of these lawsuits that I testified in was in Florida, um, in federal court there. And uh, we won that case. The judge was convinced by the academic evidence that was presented. The judge was not convinced by the case made by the state that it was too burdensome to actually try to implement something that was fair. Um, uh, that ruling was appealed uh, and overturned by the uh, appeals court uh, on uh, technical grounds, I would argue, not on the merits of the case, but rather having to do with the standing of the parties. And so one of the concerns was that when you bring litigation of that sort, that the plaintiffs have to be injured. Um, and in particular, the plaintiffs have to be candidates, according to some points of view. And uh, in that particular case, the plaintiffs were uh, the political party, the Democratic Party, and individual voters. And it's you can easily see how, well, you know, whatever the order of names is on the ballot, that uh, every voter has the ability to vote for any candidate he or she wants. Now, maybe every voter doesn't have the ability to see the victory of the candidate they want if there's a bias on the ballot. But I don't know that that's protected by law, the ability to see your winner win. Uh, but it, so the, the right of the voter to vote for any candidate he or she wants, that seems not to have been violated. Um, and the court decided that a political party was not a sufficient plaintiff. Uh, and so that caused a big problem because the cases in which I was going to testify in, in um, Georgia and Texas and Arizona uh, and Minnesota, uh, that were all filed the same way with no candidates as plaintiffs. And so that created a bit of a barrier there. Um, one other case that I testified in was in West Virginia. We won there as well. And fortunately, in, the, in West Virginia, the, there was a, a candidate who was a plaintiff in that case. And so that's before the appeals court now. And we hope that it will not be overturned. Uh, if it is not overturned, undoubtedly, it will go to the Supreme Court uh, because the state will appeal the ruling. Um, and uh, when it makes its way up to the Supreme Court, that'll be really interesting because if the Supreme Court rules that fair elections are needed to be fair to candidates, which I think and hope it should, um, then that communicates a very important message to the country, to all the states that they may need to do this. Now, of course, if the Supreme Court says, no, you know, this is not legit, if it's on technical grounds, then the lawsuits can be refiled. If the Supreme Court were to say, ah, oh, fair elections, we don't need that, um, you know, that would be remarkable. And I don't know that that's really within the purview of the Supreme Court to rule on anyway in a case like this, because I, I, I can't imagine that um, that, that the argument for the appeal would be anything other than technical. I don't think it would be an argument about Krosnick's not convincing, the literature's not convincing, the literature's overwhelming. So I'd be surprised at that. So anyhow, I couldn't miss the opportunity to raise that as an element of fairness. And and I, I hope, hope, hope that the states will be uh, will show the integrity that it takes, not to create a bias, but to eliminate a bias. And um, and therefore not to give any even alphabetical ordering of candidates gives somebody a bias. And we've all stood in lines in elementary school that were alphabetically ordered where we wish we were the A's instead of the W's. And so I think candidates feel the same way. Um, so anyhow, I think these issues, at least for me, are what come to mind as a result of this um, this January 6th event. And it's you know, it just opens up this funnel of 
of possible ways to think and to take advantage of what's been happening. I'm just going to say one last thing that's also close to my heart on this topic, which is I think if Americans are at least some and maybe many are 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 shaken at least a little bit about whether votes are counted, uh, elections are conducted fairly and votes are counted accurately. There is another thing that we can do as a country, and that is to use survey research, that there is nothing like pre-election surveys that are done using high quality methods, all confirming a particular result to be expected on election day. And then when you see that government say, yep, that's what happened, then people are almost set up to be comfortable with that election result. And if exit polls are conducted on election day, um, measuring how people voted and independent news organizations, as they have for many decades, then say, this is what we think the exit poll says. And all of that lines up, pre-election polls, the government's vote count on election day and the exit polls, then that's a really strong scientifically based basis for faith in the election outcome because the various data collections are done in, by independent organizations. Um, and the problem, of course, as you know, is that the Washington Post just a couple of days ago had a headline saying 2020 pre-election polls, the worst ever. Uh, and that, you know, the inaccuracy of the 2020 polls um, was not the worst ever. Um, it, it was only a couple of percentage points off on Donald Trump and one percentage point off on Joe Biden on average. The perception that the polls are inaccurate is a, is obviously an issue. Um, but um, what I would argue is that this concern about the accuracy of polls uh, comes from a major shift in the methodology used for polling. Uh, that uh, 30 years ago, serious pre-election polls were done by random digit dial telephone surveys, period. In my opinion, that's still the case. Serious pre-election polls would be done calling landlines and cell phones today uh, using random digit dial methodology. And that methodology continues to work extremely well when conducted properly. Unfortunately, in 2020, that methodology, when it was implemented, was implemented with shortcuts. And shortcuts that uh, uh, save money, save time, simplify the analysis process, but undermine the quality of the data. And there are lots of other methods, including non-probability sample methods being used for these pre-election polls. And, you know, yeah, descriptively, the polls are what they are. But in terms of concluding, are the polls that were done in 2020 the best that they could have been if they had used the most valid scientific methods? I'm not convinced of that. And so... I hope that that those who want the country to have faith in its own democracy will consider, you know, what does it take to fund good, objective pre-election survey research? What does it take to fund good, objective exit polls? And philanthropists who care about holding democracy together in America should consider putting their money in bipartisan ways into those kinds of efforts. I hope they will. So at JMU Civic, we focus on educating and engaging people to participate more fully in civic life, including becoming voters. In your research, you have studied and written about both the motivational and technical barriers to voting. Can you speak to how social location, psychological dispositions, events that occur around or the time of the election, and voting procedures impact voter turnout? And how might these factors impact individuals differently and have different impacts over time? Voter turnout's a really interesting phenomenon to think about because I think many of us are inclined to believe that voter turnout is an indicator of the health of a democracy. That if lots of people are voting, then the, that great, things are going well. People believe in government, they believe in the process, great. Uh, if lots of people choose not to vote, uh, that may be a sign of a democracy in distress. 
And that may lead some people to think, oh, boy, we got to get voter turnout up. What can we do to have more people vote? And I guess I would say I'm not completely sure as a scholar studying these issues that that's an obvious place to end up, um, that more people voting, and in fact, maybe everybody voting. Of course, as, as you may know, Australia is an example of a country with mandatory voting, where there are actually penalties if you don't vote, in theory. I'm not sure they actually implement the penalties, but um, the 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 dream of a democracy in which everybody participates may not be a dream at all, because what a lot of psychological research shows is that uh, in order to make good voting decisions, one needs good information with which to make those decisions. They, these are not trivial uh, decisions to make that you can just sort of wake up in the morning and decide, okay, this is what I'm going to vote for without studying up on the specifics. Um, and so would we want people to vote just for them to vote, or do we need them to be thoughtful uh, as well and to be informed? And if you ask that they be informed in the current environment where the truth is in dispute every single day, where it seems like we, you know, we just can't simply turn on the television, listen to what Walter Cronkite says to us tonight, and then move on from there saying, okay, we basically know what's happening, um, when there are such fundamental disputes about the facts. Um, it's not an easy task for well-informed voters to create the knowledge base they need in order to cast ballots intelligently. And so maybe what we should do is be happy in a democracy where the people who are interested and engaged and get the information cast votes and the people who say, look, I just can't. I'm working two jobs. I got three kids. I don't have time to study up. I'm not going to go vote just because I should vote if I don't have the time to do it thoughtfully. You know, that that's at least a question that we can ask ourselves. And so having said that um, and just saying I'm not so sure I don't have a, a, a I'm just really asking a question more than offering an opinion, but I'm not so sure that 100% turnout is what a democracy can expect or needs, um, that let's turn to your question. And what do we know about what causes some people to vote and others not to vote? Well, we know um, that the core of political science's basic theory of turnout seems to be supported beautifully by data. And that is the notion that turnout is partly a function of motivation, that is, whether you think your vote matters, um, whether you feel informed enough to have a, a thoughtful basis for casting a vote, um, partly a basis of ability, how much information do you have? Um, and uh, those two factors, uh, coupled with what psychologists often call task difficulty, um, seem to explain a great deal of variance in turnout. And so what can we control? Well, schools can educate children and adults uh, about civic life. The news media can educate people about civic life, uh, put people in a good position to formulate candidate preferences. If you think about, you know, how hard is it? How much, how good of a job is the news media doing to make it easy for Americans to cast policy-based votes in elections? I, I'll tell you a little, a little dream I have that doesn't exist as far as I know. And that is that every election, every candidate has to take positions on policy issues, on a, on a, a menu of a, like a long menu of policy issues, and that their positions get put on some website where anybody who wants to see where do the presidential candidates stand, where do the gubernatorial candidates stand, where do the House candidates stand, 
that that we kind of require that as a country. We say, you know, no fuzzing here, no sidestepping, uh, and, and we, we need to know what are your preferences? Uh, where, what will you pursue if you are elected? And obviously, you know, one potential answer to that is that's completely silly because what we know is that when elected representatives get to Congress, uh, for example, that the that power of the party leadership is so strong that uh, that all you really need to know is what party is this person from, and you can predict very well how they're going to vote. And that is largely the case, and that's fine. And if those representatives are going to take those positions before they're elected and say, I'm a Republican, therefore these are the things I'm going to vote for, these are the things I'm going to vote against, the Democrats say their, their side of that, would that help voters quickly and easily get in a position where they can look at what they need to know? Or do they have to read weeks or months or years of news stories and try to find where are the policy positions and all that? Or are they forced to use other criteria to form candidate preferences? Like, I guess I'll vote for the person who seems smarter, or I guess I'll vote for the person who seems more compassionate. Um, that, you know, if we know how we want voters to vote, that is based on the substance of the policymaking process, could we as a country make it easier if the news media were to do something like that, or if academics were to do something like that, or if academics were to do it in partnership with the news media? I think, you know, we could think about those kinds of possibilities. And that uh, I think could, in fact, you know, improve the quality of voting in America and could make it easier for voters dealing with that third term task difficulty that I talked about. But in your question, you know, you alluded also to other aspects of task difficulty. How can you register only up until months before Election Day? Can you register on Election Day um, that where your your status as a voter will be confirmed after Election Day? Um, the, you know, that just a whole series of uh, steps that can be taken to help voters know where their precinct is, to help voters get an absentee ballot if they want to cast one. These are things that government can control and that the media can control to in, to reduce difficulty, at least to allow people who want to vote to vote easily. And we know from past research that those factors matter. Uh, in terms of ability and motivation, one of the really interesting aspects of motivation is this uh the belief that Anthony Downs put into our literature a long time ago, that it matters whether you think your vote could influence the outcome of the election. And let's face it, this is an utterly silly belief. Like nobody should ever believe that their vote is going to determine the outcome of the election because it's very, 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 very hard to find an elections one by one vote. But uh, still, some people do uh, know that votes, that, that elections are close and they say to themselves, if I don't vote and my person loses by a tiny number of votes, I'm never going to forgive myself. And so I'm, I'm going to make sure I vote just to prevent the, the pain and guilt from that. You know, that that's not irrational, right? That, that you, you, if you say, maybe I shouldn't feel guilty, but I will. And so therefore I don't want to feel guilty. Therefore I'm going to vote. Fine. Okay. If that's the way you think, great. That'll, that'll cause turnout. Um, and so I think what, you know, what I've talked about is the fact that the factors that influence turnout fall in these three categories, ability, motivation, and task difficulty. And we as a society can enhance voters' ability. We can enhance their motivation. We can reduce task difficulty. And um, I support all that. The voter turnout for the 2020 presidential election was the highest in the 21st century, with around 17 million more people voting than was recorded in 2016, according to the Census Bureau. In your work, John, you talk about candidate attributes that influence candidate choice, such as compassion, competence, integrity, 
and strength of leadership. In your evaluation, what role did candidate attributes play in the 2020 elections? And especially I'm thinking about this in terms of this era of partisanship and ideological polarization. How does that affect evaluations of candidate attributes? Well, we have to answer that question to start with by recognizing um, a distinction that one might make between, let's just call it for the moment, the actual attributes of the candidates versus voters' perceptions of the attributes of the candidates. And, um, you know, you, you might doubt that there is any such thing as the actual attributes of the candidates, and that's fine. We can make that a questionable um, issue. But the, the way political scientists have studied this issue that you've asked about over time is f- looking through the eyes, through the lens of the voters themselves. And so regardless of how compassionate Donald Trump might really be in some objective sense, what matters is how compassionate voters perceive him to be or how strong of a leader people perceive uh, Joe Biden to be. And uh, so I'm going to answer your question in two ways. The the first way I'm going to answer it is to say, uh, I wish I could answer it, but the American National Election Study data from the 2020 election are, to me, the authoritative data to, to address this issue. They were released publicly not that long ago, and I have not yet seen papers that uh, that, that do the analyses I'd want to see in order to answer your question well. Um, and so uh, maybe one answer, my first answer to your question is I don't know, um, because I don't want to speak beyond what the data allow me to say. That's, I think, a really important thing for all of us as scientists to not be tempted into saying stuff that there isn't a justification for. However, I'm going to give you a second answer anyway. And my, my second answer is that uh, I, I could make a bet about what those data will show in 2020. And um, this is based upon decades of American National Election Studies analyzed before. And they are rarely very different from each other in showing the following that voters' perceptions of the personalities of the candidates, their intelligence or competence, their strength of leadership, their integrity, and their compassion, those four factors are very important predictors of candidate choice and have been for a long time in elections. Um, You can control for uh, their policy positions with voters' uh, candidate, uh, excuse me, party affiliations, their perceptions of the state of the economy, their perceptions of the, th- the threats the country faces and so on. And perceptions of candidate personalities are conti- consistently powerful predictors of candidate preferences. And secondly, um, I, I, even without seeing the data, I would happily bet a lot of money on the fact that what we will see in the data is very deep partisan division in perceptions of the candidates. And so the Republicans will say Donald Trump is a strong leader and Joe Biden is not. The Democrats will say uh, Joe Biden is a strong leader and uh, Donald Trump is not. Um, We in our team started recently to pursue the possibility that maybe political scientists have made a bit of an oversimplifying assumption over the years that like the high end of those scales is the good end. Like so the, the smarter a candidate is, the better. The more compassionate the candidate, the better. The stronger a leader, the candidate, the better. And um, we've been exploring the possibility that maybe that's not true. Maybe you want somebody who's compassionate, but not too compassionate. And you want somebody who's strong, but not too strong. 
Um, and so perhaps you could see a situation in which people, voters might say, yeah, Trump is a very strong leader, but like too strong like and, and problematically strong. And I think this would be an interesting year to use the data to try to pursue that. To do it, you need more measures that the American National Election Study didn't include, and it may be too late at this point to fully explore it. But my bet is, based on the past literature, that those personality characteristics will be powerful predictors of candidate choice again. Uh, what we don't know as a discipline, as well as I wish we did, is how much of that is perceptions of personality causing candidate choice versus perceptions of personality being after the fact rationalizations of candidate choice. And you know, we do have data that allow us to explore those kinds of things, and we need to do more analyses to investigate that. Um, you know, we we are as a discipline. I'm so proud of political science for becoming so much more quantitatively sophisticated than we have been. In, in like when I was first coming up, I mean, we 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 did what we could with limited statistics, and now political science is at the cutting edge of developing new statistical tools and leading other disciplines. I mean, the citation counts of political analysis are incredible, um, and so that's you know great that a journal like that would become a leader of methodology, and I hope that that. Um, that strength of analytic power gets put into these issues of how to make the most of data to get strong answers about what drives candidate choice. And I think that's an opportunity for future research. But, you know, I have no doubt, um, based on past literature only, that the likelihood that this election's outcome was very importantly driven by people's perceptions, especially of Donald Trump's personality, which they knew much better than Joe Biden's personality. Um, and, and contributed. But I do think, you know, it's always, I'll just take this opportunity to say, I think it's a little silly when, when we political scientists get asked, okay, well, why did Biden win? And like, you have to come up with like one answer and no, it's not that it's like there, it's a conglomeration of lots of things. He got some votes for this reason. He got some votes for that reason. He got some votes for this reason. It added up to enough to win. And I think it's, it's heterogeneous and, but no doubt personality perceptions are a part of that list of ingredients. So we focus a lot on how to connect people, um, connect the issues that people care about to political participation. And you've done substantial research um, on issue publics, um, you know, defined as, I'll, I'll use a short definition here, um, uh, communities that have an issue that is extremely important to them at, at, at a personal level. Um, can you discuss your findings about how issue publics form and grow and what in, what specifically, I know you've done some some research, quite a bit of research more recently on, on climate change specifically, and I know that's something that a lot of our students care about um, and, 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 and more broadly the public is caring more about. So what influences attitudes about climate change and what factors might, uh, might change attitudes? Well, the topic of issue publics is something that I've been uh, obsessed with since I was an undergraduate. When I was uh, at Harvard and a student of Charles Judd, we started to do work in that area. And my dissertation was on this topic, working with Don Kinder, and um, has continued for decades since then. Um, and you captured the notion of an issue public beautifully. And the way I think about it is that uh, issue public members are people who wake up in the morning, open their eyes, look across the pillow and say, good morning, gun control. Another day, another opportunity for me to do something about you. Um, and so there, it, it's, it's every minute of every day, the, that individual is married to that issue. And um, it, it takes a big commitment to become a member of an issue public. It involves a commitment to learn about an issue, 
to act on that issue whenever possible, to talk about that issue, to promote your point of view on that issue. Um, and so it's, you know, just like a good marriage. Um, and uh, we, we the, the idea really, to be fair, it's important to credit Phil Converse. Phil, who was on my dissertation committee, really wrote, you know, just a tiny bit at the end of maybe his most uh, famous publication, introducing that term, issue publics. And I, I uh, always want to tip my hat to him for introducing the concept and for um, introducing it to me when I was a grad student at Michigan at a time that came together with the literature and psychology on attitude strength, where it was just the perfect time to build that bridge of psychology to political science and grab onto this, this, this tool to understand what happens. And I'm convinced that it's a tremendously helpful tool that uh, when the time comes that there is a rally in front of the White House or in the streets of New York on climate change, the people who are out there for the most part are issue public members. Um, when uh, it comes time for people to write a check to the National Rifle Association to try to inspire them to lobby Congress to keep their gun rights protected, the people who do that are issue public members. And so we want to understand the answer to your question as scholars. We want to understand what is it that causes people to get into an issue public. And the research that we've done so far has certainly not explained 100% of the variance, but we have seen quite reliably three categories of variables that are important. First is material self-interest. Um, for the most part in politics, we've learned from Dave Sears and Don Kinder and others that uh, most people don't think about the country selfishly when it comes to their own, with regard to their own wallets, that they're not thinking, well, do I favor or oppose this federal policy because it'll help or hurt me? But when it comes to getting married, when it comes to the, the passion that people will develop about a particular policy issue, Self-interest is an important driver. So people who feel that their gun rights might be taken away get passionate about gun control. People who live in high crime areas who feel like their own safety would be enhanced by gun control laws will get into that issue public. Um, so the, so uh, self-interest is important, but there are lots of people who care deeply about the issue of abortion, who themselves will never want to have an abortion, whose children will never want to have an abortion. That it's, it's an issue that won't touch directly on the, their day-to-day -day living um, in a concrete way where their rights would be enhanced or taken away. So our work has pointed to two other categories of causes. One is social identification with reference groups or reference individuals. Uh, so it doesn't, doesn't have to be your, your rights directly being uh, enhanced um, in that way. Um, so identification with a group and seeing that group linked into an issue is important. Um, being a Catholic, for example, and wanting to maintain a strong identity as a Catholic and hearing the Pope say, uh, if you're a Catholic, you ought to be opposed to abortion and you know, it matters to us, it should matter to you. Um, that's, again, a message that could inspire people to become passionate about the issue. And lastly, uh, there is the, the, the role of values that individuals have uh, sometimes, for example, a tremendous uh, attachment to the value of freedom. And so they may say, you know, policies that encroach on people's freedom are not okay. Uh, and so therefore, uh, you know, I oppose legalized, uh, I oppose restrictions on abortion because it limits a woman's freedom to control her own body. Or I endorse freedom and I see gun control as an issue of freedom. I ought to be able to have a gun if I want to protect myself. And so therefore, I'm passionate about gun control because I see my value linked in there. Now, you can see how I just said, you know, somebody who values freedom 
could come to care about abortion or could come to care about gun control, but sort of for opposite reasons in, the, in a liberal way, in one case, a conservative way, in another way, another case. Um, so, but the important thing is those seem to be three important causes, but there's more work to be done. We, there is more variance to be explained. And I don't think we know all of the factors that will cause a marriage to an issue. Um, what we do know is that those marriages seem very stable, that once you're married, divorces rarely happen. Issue publics grow, but they don't shrink easily. Um, and so once you're kind of in there, you're in there. But it's not the case that issue public members are doing things every single day to express their issue public membership. Um, so, for example, it's not like every day I wake up and say, OK, I'm going to write another $50 check to Greenpeace. Oh, today, another $50 check to the National Resources Defense Council. That when the uh, passion gets converted into action depends upon the environment. And so, for example, like issue public members don't organize rallies. They attend rallies. So somebody has to organize the rally for them to then go to. Um, and uh, similarly, it turns out Joanne Miller's work has, Joanne from the University of Delaware has shown that um, the degree to which issue public members feel threat is an important source of inspiration. In other words, uh, when let's just say you're in the climate change issue public and you're very much on the green side of the issue, you're very worried about the planet, you're concerned about climate change and Joe Biden gets elected president. Well, what her work shows is there's a tendency for people to say, ah, OK, great. Biden's been elected. He's a champion of uh, addressing climate change. So I can go to the movies and not really worry about that anymore. Whereas when those same individuals see Donald Trump get elected and hear him say it's a hoax, it's not worth doing, we need to dismantle all limits on fossil fuels, then that creates a sense of what she calls policy change threat. And when policy change threat gets aroused, that's what will transform a Netflix watching issue public member into a check writing issue public member. Um, so there are there are important factors that both cause getting into the issue public and then situational factors that can inspire issue public members to take action. Um, it is true that the big news of 2020 for us was seeing the biggest issue public for climate change in the history of 20 years of surveying in this regard. We are seeing 25% of Americans, one out of every four Americans, saying that this was extremely importantly is extremely important to them personally, um, and so um, that's that's pretty remarkable. And I my guess is that number is here to stay and perhaps to grow. Um, and that that will put significant pressure on elected officials and that those individuals will enjoy and appreciate um, what the Biden administration is doing for them, because that that issue public on climate change is overwhelmingly on the green side of the issue. Thank you so much for your time. And finally, we asked this question of all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Well, I appreciate the question and I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to speak with you guys today. Um, and I would say strengthening democracy, number one, keep doing what you're doing, that uh, by pulling scholars together to, to have discussions and to give a voice to academic insights, uh, my colleagues uh, have so much to say that I think uh, there can't be too much of it. And podcasts like this, there aren't nearly enough of these. So I thank you and I congratulate you and I hope you'll continue with this because uh, we, we do really need it as a country. And frankly, I think we need it as a discipline that we as uh, academics feel appropriately that we have a choice about whether to be public with our work or not. 
Um, and um, I hope more people will make the choice to be public with our work and to think not only about what did we find in this paper, but what does it mean for the future? What implications are there? What lessons are learned? And the more platforms there are like yours that encourage and, and afford people the opportunity and maybe even make people feel obligated to, to link their work to the real world and to the future, um, the more as a discipline we can, we can help the world. And um, so I, I support all that. Um, I, I selfishly, I will say, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think we need more surveys in this country. I think we need more high quality surveys. I think we need those who care about democracy and have money to recognize the value that surveys have. And I'm just going to end with this one little note along those lines that um, I was talking recently to somebody who's worked on Capitol Hill for quite a while and said, you know, what, what do you what's your perception of people in Congress um, and their interest in public opinion and their interest in survey research. And he said, you know, basically not. They're not interested. Uh, really? Why not? Uh, well, first of all, because, I mean, they, they kind of have to pay attention to surveys when they're coming up for re-election. But for the most part, there aren't survey data to help them answer the questions they want to answer because we have national surveys that tell us what all Americans think about gun control or abortion or climate change or whatever. But if you're representing the third district of Michigan, what who's giving you good quality surveys on all the issues you have to vote on? And doesn't that leave those elected representatives open to being pushed by their party leadership to follow the party line instead of listening to their constituents when they don't really know what their constituents believe? How could they know what their constituents believe? Surveys. How can that happen? Money. It takes money. There are a lot of districts. It would take a lot of money to be able to do that. There are folks who are trying to develop new, clever statistical tools, such as MRP, that are designed to try to create small area estimates of opinions from large-scale surveys. Personally, for me, I don't buy it. I think it's more a statistical hocus-pocus than it is reality. I, I may be wrong. I would love it if I'm wrong, because if so, it's really inexpensive to get those small area estimates that Congress needs. But so far, our analysis has not led us to have confidence in that method. But there are other techniques and very affordable ones, including some stuff that our group has been exploring to try to take existing surveys and generate small area estimates of opinions to help Congress. I think that would help. I think um, those who have money and believe in democracy should think about something different from putting huge amounts of money into advertising for political campaigns that if it's all negative advertising might do basically uh, only uh, have impact to reduce voter turnout and not convert anybody to change their minds on anything. Um, so uh, I, I will selfishly say, I hope even when I'm not doing it anymore, that, that we live in a world where there's a lot more survey research done with high quality methods um, to help inform government and to create an accountability for government so that at least if government's not going to do what the public wants, uh, elected officials need to tell people why they're not doing that. Um, and so that, that's my two cents for on that for today. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement 
at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.